Hey guys, welcome to another episode of We Read Theory. Um, we, we've received um, a bunch of messages asking, you know, how can I support the show? Um, do you guys have a Patreon that we can donate to? And, and so on and so forth. But we, we thought it might be a good idea to put those resources that uh, any of our listeners wanted to donate towards something that'll actually help. Um, and I wanted to make it a little bit more uh, closer to home, um, something that at least um, Mark doesn't have any experience with, but I uh, truly care about. Um, I've been going to a really great barber shop for the last, you know, a couple months since I moved to the city. And honestly, I, I walked in there and they made me feel right at home. And I've established a great relationship with, with a couple people on staff. And, and it's, it's just um, a, key, a cornerstone of my small neighborhood in Brooklyn that I'd really like personally to keep going. It's a uh, Black-owned barbershop called Heritage Tonsorial. And because of the recent crisis, they've uh, run a little low on funds, so they started a GoFundMe. And all we're asking is if you'd like to, um, once you donate $20 to the link in the description, which I'll just read out now is gofundme.com slash F slash heritage tonsorial, tonsorial spelled T-O-N-S-O-R-I-A-L. If you donate $20 or more, if you're feeling particularly generous, um, we'll shout you out on the top of the episode on our next recording. Uh, just, just as a little thank you. Um, what you can do is put at We Read Theory in the comment on the GoFundMe, and we will, and, and we will shout out the name that you put in the GoFundMe, or in the, if you have a different name that you'd rather go by. Um, you can put that in the comment as well, and and we'll read that out. So with that out of the way, um, I guess let's get into it. One of the um, topics of discussion that I feel like I've seen thrown around um, recently specifically involves um, the role of police unions and kind of how police unions are different from other kinds of unions, like, say, uh, a union that you might be in if you're a construction worker or uh, an iron worker or something like that. Um, and so um, what I thought was really telling was when I watched that um, that press conference with the NYPD union boss, uh, which has kind of become something of a meme since then, where um, he's, like, complaining about how people are, you know, not showing them enough respect and how they're treating them like they're animals. They're vilified in the media. And it, if I'm thinking of the right video. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, and what was really a telling fact about that to me was that was that I was thinking, you know, any other group of workers that was this well organized, this unionized, would be on strike right now. I mean, this is this is just how um, a unionized set of workers puts pressure on people to give them more respect, give them more power. And you don't see that happening at all. What you're really seeing is that the police are doing their job a lot more. Um, and so that's kind of a really interesting difference um, to me. And I think it kind of showcases that um, one of the things that we're going to talk about in this episode when we really get started is that um, other workers are kind of at risk of exploitation because 
they're, they're doing work that's really, really necessary for like the functioning of society. And so they can really put society uh, on its back heel just by stopping doing what they're doing. Whereas um, there seems to be an awareness amongst the police that a police strike might not put their might not put society on that like much worse of a footing than say um like you know iron like workers uh, like or... a yeah like the dock like the dock strike that we're that that it seems we're going to be seeing on Juneteenth this year I mean um so I think that that's if we're if we're trying to figure out kind of how to articulate what is actually the difference between the police union and maybe other kinds of unions, maybe that's uh, an angle to think about. I don't know. It's just something I've been thinking about. Yeah, totally. Uh, for the past few days or so. If I had to choose between cops striking and teachers striking, I know where, I know which group I'd want to keep around. Yeah, and it's specifically the fact that the power of police is self-perpetuating, uh, or like the need for police is self-perpetuating rather than just inherent to society is I think one of the main reasons why I don't support police unions in the same way that I might uh, for pretty much any other group of workers. Yeah, that makes sense. Seems like a bit of an anomaly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's that's all that's all I really had to say about that. So do we want to um, get into kind of the real meat and potatoes? Welcome to We Read Theory. I'm Mark. And I'm Alex. And even though our tagline is usually that we read theory so you don't have to, our goal today is actually to convince you to read this book cover to cover. We're going to be talking about um, a book called The End of Policing by a man named Alex Vitali. And we're going to go over, go over all its basic principles in order and have our own inputs. But the moment we're living in is an incredible opportunity to introduce new ideas. And we can't be lazy in educating ourselves. So if this episode interests you, I recommend that you head over to Verso and pick up the ebook of The End of Policing for free. Uh, you may need to download some kind of an e-reader app in order to make it work. I downloaded the Kindle app. It's also free, so don't worry. You're not giving Amazon your money or anything like that. How do you spell and Verso? Just inter quick interlude. Verso, that would be V-E-R-S-O dot com. And then you can just go to the search bar and search for The End of Policing. That's very helpful. Thank you, Mark. And it should be very easy. Um, and what The End of Policing does fundamentally is show that defunding police departments across the nation and reallocating those funds to schools, healthcare, social services does not only stand up to moral scrutiny, but also the empirical scrutiny that you might see from like the liberal technocrats and not just leftists. On Monday, June 9th, the House Democrats under Nancy Pelosi proposed a sweeping police reform bill that included things like a ban on chokeholds, a requirement for expanded bias training for cops, and universal use of body cameras. And the argument that we're going to make for you today, and that we're going to kind of use the end of policing to help us make, is that these reforms are woefully insufficient uh, because they do not attack the core of the problem of policing in America. Our goal today is to normalize the idea of defunding and reallocating to the wider American population and to encourage direct action that places external pressure on our political institutions to make change where the internal pressures of voting and legislative compromise are clearly failing to get that job done. 
So without further ado, what is the fundamental problem with policing? In short, the police do not and cannot protect you. They do not and cannot prevent crime. And most of the time, the police can't even successfully dispense justice after a crime has already been committed. If a murder occurs and a suspect is not found within 48 hours, the case goes cold the vast majority of the time. Most burglaries are never investigated at all, and most crimes investigated are never solved. There is no correlation between increasing the amount of policing in an area and a reduction in the rate of crime, and the reality is that police mostly spend their time patrolling and handing out tickets and citations for drug possession, parking violations, or low-level offenses like disorderly conduct. Uh, we put billions upon billions of dollars a year into policing across this country, and we have basically nothing to show for it. Well, that's not quite the case either. If you assume the job of police is to keep you safe and prevent crime, then police are an unmitigated failure. But what if that's just what they like to tell us their job is? What if their actual job is something totally different? If we want to answer that question, we have to examine the history and origins of American police. Depending on where you live, if you live in the United States, uh, your police originated in one of a few ways. Some of the earliest official police forces in the United States began in Boston and New York in 1838 and 1844, respectively. And it's no coincidence that these two cities were massive hubs through which immigrants entered the country. The policing methods used by these two departments were imported from the British, who had developed their own methods of policing to keep their imperial holdings under control and economically productive. Police were superior in this regard to the British military because they could embed themselves in communities and gather information more effectively. We remember from our discussions of Foucault that disciplinary systems require highly detailed information as part of a feedback loop, which allows for greater degrees of precise control. So as we said, the police forces of Boston and New York were basically British imports and specifically of the London Metropolitan Police, which were in turn modeled after the Royal Irish Constabulary. All of these police forces shared a common quality that their main purpose was not to increase the quality of life of the people under their jurisdiction, but to maintain their productivity so as to keep the imperial core financially solvent. In Ireland, this took the form of vagrancy laws. Civilians could be arrested simply for not engaging in productive labor. I really don't want to get bogged down calling back to Foucault over and over, but let's remember that another aspect of disciplinary societies is that they don't punish bad behavior, but rather punish behavior that fails to be good enough, and that standards of good are always closely tied to the accumulation of wealth. These vagrancy laws in Ireland saw their parallel in the American South in the years following the abolition of slavery. Newly freed black Americans were incarcerated for failing to find employment, which meant being put back into slavery, which was and is still legal under the 13th Amendment for prisoners. So it literally says, 13th Amendment literally says slavery. Yeah. Um, no longer, it, it should be abolished except for as punishment for a crime. Yeah, absolutely. That, that is almost the exact wording of the amendment. Yeah, which is why Rikers Island protest, protesters, Rikers Island prisoners are paid fucking pennies for doing actual work with no either protective equipment or safety standards. Yeah, and you see the same deal with um, these groups of prisoners from uh, California prisons who have been dispatched to fight fires earlier this year in uh, California, who are not only being paid basically nothing for their work, but who then, upon release, don't seem to be able to get jobs as firefighters, even though they have experience. Because they're felons. 
Yeah. Um, so, in order to avoid the fate of becoming slaves in prisons, black Americans had to take whatever work was offered to them, which usually meant sharecropping, a labor condition not particularly different from slavery, except that now the violent coercion that kept them on the plantation was the police and their vagrancy laws instead of the hired security forces of the old slave masters. The kicker, though, is that the groups who'd previously done the work of capturing runaway slaves in the antebellum years were the very same groups that had now been turned into official police forces. I can imagine if that's what your job required, that being an old, being a former slave catcher would be a pretty solid resume for people looking for that. So, I mean, it logically tracks as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The first state police force in the United States was that of Pennsylvania. Although they were officially deputized, they were originally a wholly privatized force whose stated purpose was strike-breaking and infiltrating labor organizations to prevent them from effectively resisting their own exploitation. The transformation of the coal and iron police, as they were originally called, into the Pennsylvania State Police occurred in 1905, and this was done because it was cheaper to use public money to hire a permanent police force than to hire them on a private and ad hoc basis, and public funding further legitimized their authority. They imported policing tactics not from the British colonial empire, but from America's own colonial holdings in the Philippines. Methods like the use of radio patrol cars and fingerprinting were developed to control the colonial population overseas and eventually became the standard police practices all over the United States. I feel like radio patrol cars would just be like an effective effective way to communicate as a team in general. Is there anything specific that made them as particularly horrible in this case that allowed them to... I don't know. Um, the the point isn't so much uh, that they were horrible, like in and of themselves, but that the fact that they were mainly used for suppressing like colonial resistance, keeping the population, like uh, gathering information to keep the population as docile and productive as possible. And what we're really trying to point at is that is that what the police represent is is the methods that we use in colonies to kind of repress that population, keep them working to the benefit of the American empire and bringing that home and using it on the domestic population. And there's a word that's often defined as the strategies of colonial oppression brought home and used on the domestic population. I can't remember what it is though. Uh, I guess it doesn't matter. Uh, But in all seriousness, I am of course talking about one of the various definitions of fascism that we discussed in episode six. And this idea of fascism comes to us from anti-colonialist writers like M.A. Césaire, who we read in that episode, or others like Frantz Fanon. Uh, and it's a definition that, if you believe it holds water, then you basically have to admit that the American police is an inherently fascist institution. That was a good bit, Mark. You really, you really, you really had me fooled for a second there. I really had you fooled. And I, I had sorry. the script right in front of me, too. I was just completely bamboozled. <laughs> so... That's what policing has historically been about, but we obviously need to examine what it looks like today. Alex Vitali spends most of the end of policing discussing the efficacy, or lack thereof, of police solutions in improving eight aspects of American life. These are schools, mental health, homelessness, sex work, drugs, gangs, immigration, and political organizing. We're going to talk about every one of those in that order, and... um, In writing this episode, it became very obvious that this was just too much information for one episode, so we've decided to split it up into two parts. 
We're going to cover those first four, that's schools, mental health, homelessness, and sex work in this episode. And then we're going to get into some of those really heavy topics with the war on drugs, gang suppression, border policing, and political policing in part two, which will be up literally as soon as we can get it out. And um, it, it might be a bit long. Uh, so, you know, do whatever you got to do. Listen to each episode in installments, whatever. But please do get all the way to the end on this one because we've entered an era in American politics which requires very competent advocates everywhere we can get them. It's not just enough to understand that there are problems with police. We need to have the ability to make specific criticisms and offer genuine, workable solutions in public for as many people as can be made to hear them. And so the point of this episode right now is to help all of you do that to the best of our ability. So the police role in schools has greatly expanded in the past few decades for three major reasons. The first is the underlying neoconservative ideology that has formed the foundation of police strategy since the 90s. This is the basic assumption that crime results from moral failings and that those who commit crimes do so because of a personal disposition rather than material conditions. Based on this ideological foundation, the only way to deal with criminality is to remove those who commit crimes from legal society and deter them from committing crimes with the threat of violent punishment. We'll see how that affects our schools in just a moment. The second reason was Columbine. It's hard for me to relate given that I was born a few years after the Columbine shooting happened and grew up in a world where shootings in schools were generally thought of as a threat that needed to be accounted for. But the entrance of violence on this scale into schools, especially middle-class white schools, was a massive shock to the American sensibility. Police officers in schools have in part been justified by the promise that they will make our kids safer in the event of another Columbine, or another Newtown, or another Parkland. The third reason is the rise of standardized testing in schools. The pervasiveness of standardized testing as the end-all be-all of tracking student success in American schools can in large part be attributed to the Bush administration and its famous no-child-left-behind policy, probably the most dishonestly named law in American history. What No Child Left Behind did was introduce widespread standardized tests and base school budgets and teacher job security on these test scores. The inevitable and obvious result of this was that teachers were incentivized with their jobs on the line to teach to the test rather than children's individual needs. Schools became more alienating to students, especially those whose particular learning style didn't vibe with the Foucauldian institutions that schools were turning into. Uh, the adoption of standardized testing is correlated with increases in disruptive and even violent behavior by these same kinds of students. Applying disciplinary measures to keep these problem students from negatively affecting the education of the rest of the student body, either directly or by lowering average test scores, increasingly fell upon school resource officers, those same cops who'd been placed in schools to keep our kids safe from mass shooters and the like. Let it also be said that standardized that performance on standardized testing, like the SAT, is positively correlated with household income. Yeah, I think it's actually more correlated with income than any other factor. Oh yeah, I I, I believe I don't know how it ranks against other things, but it, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me. But when you when you add on the cor the um, correlation of standardized testing with budget as well as um, the fact that budget is also determined by household income in the area, you get these kids whose parents are working two jobs and are never home to you know help their kids with homework and whatnot, um, potentially doing poorer on test scores, getting less budget, and 
just exacerbating the situation completely. Yeah, yeah. We're going to notice a pattern of a strategy that doesn't work being reinforced because the only explanation that people can come up with for why it isn't working is because it's just a great strategy that hasn't been committed to hard enough. We're definitely going to see that pattern a lot today. So in these school resource officers, we see the problem of policing in microcosm. Police are stationed in schools to make our kids safer and make schooling work better. At least that's the idea. Problems that result in the student body from insufficient support networks now fall on cops to solve with punitive measures. But the underlying problem remains unaddressed, so school life doesn't actually improve in any way for anyone involved. And even in the case of mass shootings, the incidents where police seem most necessary, it doesn't seem that school resource officers are doing much at all to keep our kids safer. We saw in the case of the Parkland shooting that the SRO on site did not effectively respond to the situation at all. Didn't he literally just dip? Uh, yeah, he, I don't know that he dipped, but he spent a lot of time like preparing to intervene, but never actually did. And then uh, following that, there was that, uh, there was that, there was that ruling that the police legally have no obligation to protect you in the event of like a violent crime, which is something that we all kind of understood already, but uh, has now since been codified more officially. But it's not even just that the police help no one. Their presence is actively harmful to the future prospects of the students who are subject to their punishments. Students who attend schools with SROs are five times as likely to be arrested during their school-aged years as students who don't. And that's after controlling for race and income. It's no surprise that suspensions and arrests in school are significantly more likely to happen to black students, and particularly black boys, as well as students with mental disabilities. The test scores increase, sure but only because the rates of expulsions and arrests, which remove the problem students from the statistics, have increased too. We are literally leaving these kids behind. If we want to meaningfully address these problems, we need to do a few things. The first is to ditch the standardized testing model, or at least disconnect the tests from school funding. Stop forcing teachers to choose between the funding they need to teach their classes and the well-being of a few problem students. Second, get the fucking cops out of the schools altogether. In New York City, our schools have more cops than they have guidance counselors. The money that goes towards these SROs would be better spent hiring counselors who specialize in nonviolent conflict resolution or teachers who specialize in teaching kids with special needs. Our kids need positive role models they can trust. Some might argue that SROs can be that, and at their best, they can to a degree. But this function is inevitably undercut by their primary role of surveilling, controlling, and performing violence on the same kids they're supposed to be guiding, and it's time to stop. Let's talk about mental health. The kind of treatment and medication that people with mental illness need to live happy and safe lives is often too expensive, and in some places doesn't even exist. People with mental illnesses that are left untreated can, at times, pose a threat to their own safety or the safety of those around them. Family members or loved ones, or even strangers who witness a person with mental illness posing a threat to someone's safety, will often predictively call the cops. Who else? When people with mental illness don't get the resources they need, which puts them in a situation where the likelihood of someone calling the cops on them is relatively high, what you have is effectively the criminalization of mental illness. This manifests in some really disturbing ways. Of the 2 million people who are jailed every year in the United States, 15% of the men and 30% of the women are people with mental illness. Quoting Vitaly directly, quote, The largest inpatient psychiatric facilities in the United States are the L.A. County Jail, New York's Rikers Island Jail, and Chicago's Cook County Jail. 
The people with mental illness in jails and prisons outnumber those in state hospitals 10 to 1, unquote. People with mental illness who find themselves in prison also only get the treatment they need 17% of the time. Since the underlying cause of the criminality tends to remain unaddressed, recidivism rates are high. But incarceration isn't the only problem. Interacting with the police at all carries its own dangers, especially for people with mental illness, who may be more likely to appear threatening. Police who are called to deal with a person with mental illness will end up shooting and killing that person on the spot literally hundreds of times every year. Some reformers have proposed that police be given additional training to deal specifically with people with mental illness. Some have gone further and proposed that special teams of police be trained as mental illness response teams. These reforms would likely mean some marginal improvements in the chances of people with mental illness to survive encounters with the police, which is good, but they remain woefully insufficient because they fail to answer or even ask one basic question. Are the police the people who should be dealing with this problem in the first place? Whether we approach this problem morally or empirically, the answer is no. In response to the moral question, jailing people does real harm to those who experience it. If we keep people out of jail without putting others at risk simply by providing the necessary treatment for their mental illness, we should do that. On the empirical question, incarcerating people with mental illness instead of providing them treatment does little to reduce their criminality long term. While providing healthcare, medication, and even housing for free might pose an upfront cost, over a longer time frame, it costs as little as one-half to one-third the cost of cycling all these people through bouts of incarceration. In the event that a person with mental illness is thought to be a legitimate threat to their safety or the safety of others, armed police should be the last resort. The people who get sent first should not be armed and should not be trained as police. This would reduce the instance of unnecessary death when cops get jumpy, it would also reduce instances of suicide by cop, in which people with severe depression may call the cops on themselves and then act in a threatening way to get the cops to shoot and kill them. This form of suicide is only made possible because when one calls 911, they can expect to be met with armed officers who've been trained to use lethal force when they feel threatened. And um, something I forgot to mention in the script is that another problem with having police be the people who um, kind of come and deal with people with mental illness is that the resources that might be provided by the police say the fact that the largest inpatient facilities for psychiatric patients are all jails. Um, we don't want these um, we don't want these programs or these resources uh, gate kept behind um, dealing with the cops and potentially being arrested. We would rather that people are able to seek these out. Um, on their own and put as few roadblocks in between them and that as possible. So getting the police out of that situation, making it as safe as possible to get those resources, will get more people getting the help that they need. Yeah. The the fact that um, like a regular session of therapy, like the minimum cost I've heard among you know different friend groups I've had is probably like $75, $80 a session. And that's just not yeah. available to like a vast majority of the population. Yeah. And that's assuming that you even have that's assuming that you even have those services near you, which you don't always have. And if the police are only there to bring you to those services and they don't have the funding to even exist, then what is something the police going to do for that person anyway? It's only going to take them out of that situation on a momentary basis, but it might actually really fuck up their life in the long term. Yeah, and that that's assuming that the therapist or worker in, in, um, that you're matched with actually helps you, because that's. Yeah, you almost have. 
I, I, I could get into a talk about therapy, but we have a long <laughs> script ahead of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have so much more to talk about. Okay. Uh, so homelessness. Homelessness is another circumstance that, while not illegal itself, is effectively criminalized due to an intersection of services without funding and police who are expected to perform too many different kinds of duties. As with crime, homelessness is often characterized by conservatives and even many liberals as being primarily due to a moral failing on the part of the homeless person. The reality is much more complicated. Homelessness is often comorbid with mental illness and drug addiction. The price of housing is also quite high in big cities, which are the same places that tend to contain the most opportunities to find work. Families living in big cities on multiple incomes still often spend upwards of half their total income on housing alone. One mistake, or even one unlucky event, can turn a poor but housed person into a homeless person frighteningly quick. But the fact that homelessness often reflects no actual moral failing on the part of the homeless person isn't even the biggest problem with the moralistic view. Fundamentally, moralizing homelessness simply does nothing to solve the problem. Homeless people are a fact of life. There's never been a period of American history where there are not homeless people, and it will never be profitable in a market system to provide housing to people who can't pay for it. Even if you don't believe housing should be a human right, Homeless people being present in a community causes harm to others in the community as well. People don't prefer to live and hang around in spaces where homeless people stay and sleep. Homeless people will beg passersby for money. They'll pee outside. They will fail to comply with general expectations of conduct and hygiene simply out of inability. The unavoidable conclusion is that, regardless of how you feel, something always has to be done about homelessness. Today, the primary institution that we task with dealing with the problem of homelessness is the police. Sometimes the police may direct homeless individuals to homeless courts, through which they might find some temporary housing and other services, but mostly the function of the police in dealing with homeless people is to keep them out of sight and out of mind for the rest of us. This includes telling homeless people to go somewhere else, or even banning them from whole areas entirely. In certain places, practices associated with homelessness, like panhandling and public urination, can result in tickets which homeless people, legendary for not being exactly flush with cash, will never be able to pay, leading to higher fines and even incarceration down the line. Far from helping homeless people out of their situation, incarceration only impedes their already narrow pathways back into productive society, as past convictions can make finding stable work more difficult. This method of dealing with the problem of homelessness is not only immoral and harmful to those we subject to it, but it's also financially wasteful. Quote, an in-depth case study conducted by researchers at the University of Southern California found that the total cost per person of public services for two years living on the streets was $187,288, compared to a $107,032 for two years in permanent housing with support services, a savings of $80,256, or almost 43%, unquote. That, that brings up two things to me right off the bat. One, it's expensive to be poor. If you're poor, you are living yeah. paycheck to paycheck. You can't buy in bulk or you can't invest for um, like long, mm -hmm. long term savings, right? For, for exponential growth in the long term is what I meant. Yeah. And you, you, you can't do it. And you're literally inches away from losing everything, which in entirety is not a lot. And two, that's what this is exactly what people are talking about when people say, when they say, Police exist to protect, protect property, not you. People yeah, will call absolutely. the cops on homeless people simply for existing because having them around there decreases their property value and yeah. negatively financially affects them. 
they hot sorry I, I i i digress yeah yeah and 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 besides uh protecting private property we're also looking at a job of which we see with union busting and with uh labor organization infiltration is that it's really about keeping the lower class in its place which goes hand in hand with protecting private property of course right so how can we do better as we mentioned Homeless courts exist right now to avoid sending those arrested for crimes related to homelessness to jail and instead provide them with some cursory services. And that's good. But if we really want to tackle the problem at its roots, we need to stop treating homelessness as a criminal problem entirely. The placement of homeless courts inside of the justice system means that police and judges remain the arbiters of who has access to these services and who goes to jail or gets a ticket. It also gatekeeps some of these services behind the arrest meaning that sometimes a homeless person might try to get a bed at a homeless shelter and be denied, only to be granted that same bed later after they're arrested. Let's cut the bullshit. These people need permanent housing, nothing less. Providing permanent housing is cheaper and it attacks the root of the problem, removing police from the equation entirely, unless they're specifically called to deal with a genuine danger. It means that homeless people do not have to interact with cops who are armed and expected to use lethal force in order to get the services they need, which makes the whole process safer for everybody. Income supports like raising the minimum wage would also help this problem. The main reason people become homeless is because they can't afford housing. Duh. As long as the minimum wage stays the same and the price of everything else continues to rise, the likelihood that someone can work full-time and still end up too poor to afford a place to live gets higher and higher. In line with this, Funding must be put towards more affordable housing, either by the government building it directly or by subsidizing it. The process of cycling homeless people through a revolving door of incarceration is wildly expensive and leaves these individuals no room to escape their situation and find productive work to do. Providing housing and other necessary services on the front end will make our communities more pleasant, improve the lives of those who are homeless today, and ultimately be more financially sound than what we do now. And the last subject we're going to be talking about on this, on part one of this episode is the policing of sex work. No more than in the case of policing sex workers are methods of law enforcement dishonestly framed as helping those they hurt the most. I am, of course, talking about sex workers themselves. Many of the hazards inherent to the industry, the risk of exploitation, the role of human trafficking, and the potential spread of STDs are all used to justify to the public a set of laws and police doctrines that not only make sex workers more vulnerable to these same hazards, but also make it more difficult for them to seek legal recourse should they fall victim to one of them. And this is obviously the case in places where sex work itself is illegal, in the same way that drug dealers have no means of enforcing their property rights to the illegal drugs they sell in the event of a theft, sex workers in places where the practice is totally criminalized often have more to lose by going to the police to report, say, an abusive pimp than they have to gain. Their position on the outside of legal society likewise makes pimps more powerful in the industry since they provide the protection from unknown and often dangerous buyers where the police can't or won't. The policing of sex work, like most vice crimes, is a breeding ground for police corruption as well. Sex and drugs, in particular, are industries that overflow with cash, so bribing is an inevitably common practice. Since the kinds of people who are most likely to know who is a sex worker are pimps, johns, and the workers themselves, police often resort to some horrifying tactics to find this out. That can mean going undercover as johns and soliciting sex work, and often having sex with the workers before arresting or interrogating them 
Quote, a 2005 survey of sex workers found that 14% had had sexual experiences with police, unquote. This can also mean simply assuming someone is a sex worker and arresting them based on some ancillary factors like style of dress, appearing to be transgender, or even carrying condoms. None of these things are illegal, but since they give police justification, quote-unquote, to accuse someone of a crime, they are effectively criminalized in their own right. With all this in mind, let's be aware that all of this does basically nothing to curb the rate at which sex work occurs. If anything, it actually increases the likelihood of many of the moral hazards sex work is criminalized to prevent, such as the spread of STDs, which increases when sex workers fear they may be arrested for carrying condoms. I know I already made this point before, but we will keep making it. People do not engage in sex work because of a lack of policing and violence. Women often choose to be sex workers because the money is better, or they feel they have more control over their working conditions than in the legal sphere. People who are transgender often have difficulty finding legal work at all, and sex work is an alternative that, while illegal and dangerous, can provide some economic freedom. People looking to come to the United States are often brought in on the condition that they will pay back their transporter by performing sex work for some time after. The ideology pushing this method of policing sex work is the same broken windows ideology that motivates everything we've talked about so far, that posits that homelessness or acting out in school are the results purely of moral failing and bad choices rather than material conditions. One of the most common reforms, and one that's even been implemented in parts of the U.S., is called the Nordic model, which is based off of reforms made in Sweden. The basic tenet of this model is to make it legal to sell sex but not buy it. In Sweden, this had some moderately positive results. The overall rates of prostitution went down, and the prices went up. However, this model does not take sex workers all the way out of the illegal sphere for obvious reasons. Pimping is still illegal, so sex workers must still engage with criminal activity to have their necessary protection. A landlord who allows sex workers to work out of apartments they rent in their building can be accused of pimping, so sex workers must either work out on the street which is much more dangerous, or risk being evicted. As with homelessness, the Nordic model makes the act of sex work legal, but effectively leaves it criminalized because of all the actions that surround it remain illegal. Yeah, we're not, I don't think we're getting into like the actual like morality of sex work, but it, it should be stated that if you disagree with someone's right to be a sex worker, then you disagree with, well, I, I, don't, I don't want to limit this to women, but a lot of people's bodily autonomy yeah yeah i mean the yeah there's a lot of um ideology surrounding like the policing of sex work that um kind of assumes that no one would ever be a sex worker if it was legal which the legality of sex work in other parts of the world as we're about to discuss uh kind of proves that's not the case um and yeah it's just it's 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 an anti-reality stance that really does nothing for anyone but even if you are against sex work, did I just interrupt you? Just a, just a tad. I, I just I just remember I'm reading sorry. something that stuck with me. I read it, I read it years ago, but um, just just like like a, like a simple comparison. Um, pe- yeah. People people say uh, when they see a sex worker, they say, "Oh, you're you're selling your body," and and say those selling your body. The three words yeah. are like a, a terrible, awful thing. But then see yeah. coal miners working in exposing themselves to toxic fumes and mines and drastically decreasing their life expectancy aren't selling their bodies. So maybe you need to take a view of 
you know, your moral stance on human sexuality. Yeah, it's it's one of those ways of making the view that sex work is just icky and I don't know why I feel that way and make it sound like a reasonable position. That is like something that you've thought about. Yeah. Um, so some other models in the U.S. involve providing some temporary housing and alternate employment programs for sex workers. The problem with this is, and you know, this is going to sound like I'm repeating myself, Many of these services are gatekept behind being arrested, which places an unnecessary barrier between sex workers and the programs they need. It also leaves police as the people who get to decide who is and is not a sex worker, and leaves judges as arbiters of who deserves help and who deserves jail. Furthermore, many of these services are provided by religious organizations, so receiving them often comes with a healthy serving of religious dogma, which puts the separation of church and state into question. An alternative model is one that's already alive and well in rural Nevada, as well as parts of Europe, New Zealand, and Australia. Sex work is totally decriminalized, and so is the running of housing, which can provide sex workers with some degree of safety and organization. In Nevada, sex workers are employed as contractors who participate in the formal economy. They report feeling safer and more satisfied in their work lives than sex workers elsewhere. In parts of Europe, as well as New Zealand and Australia, the underground trade has been largely replaced by the legal one, and coercive and underage sex work is significantly reduced. The reality is that sex work is something that will happen no matter how dangerous we choose to make it. We need reality-based solutions if we're going to keep both these workers and our communities safe from crime. And that about covers it for part one of our two-part episode on Alex Vitale's The End of Policing. In our next episode, we'll pick up where we left off and discuss the last four topics, the drug war, gangs, border control, and political policing. It should be out sometime in the next few days, as we said, and we will let you know on Twitter when that happens, so don't forget to follow us at WeReadTheoryPod on Twitter for updates as far as that is concerned. And um, is there any other social media you'd like to plug before we sign off, Alex? Social media? No, that's the... Currently, the only place where uh, we can be reached. I'm not going to put my phone number in here for just so many reasons. But uh, as we said at the top of the episode, feel free to donate to the GoFundMe. Um, make sure to put at We Read Theory Pod in the comments so we know that you are the person who donated. And we will shout you out at the top of our next episode. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to you guys on how this goes. And don't forget to go to Neighborhood in Brooklyn that I'm going to just replace with a beep and match with Alex on Tinder and send him fun leftist memes. I, I, I don't have a Tinder. I, I love my girlfriend. She she just literally said yesterday she's going to – she's like, I haven't been listening to, to the pod yet. I'm going to binge all the episodes. So thank thank you for throwing that in, Mark. That's, that, that's much appreciated. I'm not, I'm not right. on Tinder. Shout out. Um, apologies to all, all single listeners. I'm taken. All right. Um, so that's it. Thanks, guys. Love you.